Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, one man car. My name is Jesse Romero. We want to pray for Bishop O'Connell. He was murdered over the weekend, the bishop <clears throat> for the Diocese of uh, the San Gabriel region for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal rest grant unto Bishop O'Connell, Lord, let your perpetual light shine upon him. May the soul of Bishop O'Connell, through the mercy of God, rest in peace, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, family, today is the month of February. It's dedicated to the Holy Family. A good way to end your prayers is by saying, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we love you. Save souls. <clears throat> a couple of things I want to mention before we jump on to today's topic is that officials are apologizing after ousting pro-lifers. That's a good sign. The National Archives Museum, the officials this week, signed a legal agreement to ensure that staff will never repeat a recent incident in which they told pro-lifers to remove their pro-life hats or leave the building. The officials also offered the plaintiffs in a lawsuit over the incident a tour of the National Archives Museum and a personal apology. The, the agreement does not settle the visitor's lawsuit in which they allege that the institution violated their civil rights. Hey, I want to talk about the importance of doing a holy hour as Catholics. It's good for us to work on our interior life. With everything happening out in the exterior and outside all around us, in the church, in the culture, in the world, in our country, and in your state. It's good to focus on the interior life. It, it has to become strong in order for you to survive this present darkness that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> so I've committed myself to a holy hour for many years now, once a week, every Monday night from 12 midnight to 1 in the morning. Let me give you some practical suggestions for, for those of you that hesitate to commit to the Lord Jesus Christ for a weekly holy hour. I know this is the question that's been on your mind, and perhaps somebody's suggested it to you. I am. Every Catholic listening to this show should be doing a weekly holy hour. A weekly holy hour. Heck, there's some people like Bush and Fisher, Fulton Sheen that did a daily holy hour. Can you imagine? But uh, again, some people are reluctant for different reasons to do a holy hour. And maybe the, you know, the length of time, the burden of other duties, the fear that they can't keep this regular commitment... Or maybe you find adoration a chore. You love God, but, you, but just sitting there is too difficult. Some of you say, oh, this is boring. I can't do that for an hour. Nothing ever seems to happen. Well, some people say, well, I want to serve God in, in other ways that feel more productive. Well, I, I've been a regular adorer for several years and have faced, uh, I've faced these difficulties firsthand. Yet adoration consistently remains a top priority for me in my life. And here's why. Along with some practical advice for overcoming some, some obstacles, uh, <clears throat> some people say, well, <clears throat> why sign up instead of just going? What difference does that make? Well, I'll tell you what difference it makes. Adoration, to me, felt laborious for me in the beginning many years ago. And I can't tell you how many hours I spent sitting in the church waiting for the, for the hour to be, to be up, just like, uh, you know, probably some of the saints in times past. Sometimes I feel this way. Well, why do I keep it then? I'm going to tell you the, the reason I keep doing this weekly holy hour for many years now. 
The answer is threefold. Number one, time matters. Time is our most valuable commodity. As my dad says, you can always get more money. You can't get more time. To not only go to adoration, but to block out a specific hour for it is to commit to our Lord Jesus Christ on a whole new level. We're telling him by carving out a week of the, of the of, of, an hour of the week, we're saying, Jesus, you're a top priority in my life. Jesus, infinitely generous, will repay such a commitment beyond measure, just as he promises in the Gospels. The second reason, love is manifest in concrete actions. <clears throat> love is an act of the will, not an emotion. Adoration, therefore, is not always an emotional experience. The hour you spend with our Lord Jesus Christ is not how you feel. It's about growing in a relationship with Him. Adoration at, at any time is a good thing, but committing to a particular hour of the week or even of the day and going then, no matter how I feel, it demands spiritual maturity. And the third reason is, it's the place par excellence for prayer. Spending time with Jesus is essential if we're going to possess the grace needed for fulfilling our duties. Remember, he's the vine, we're the branches. Without him, we can do nothing, John 15, 5. And the place par excellence for prayer is with Jesus in the blessed sacrament. Because the Eucharist, as we know, is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other, the other sacraments, <clears throat> indeed, all the ecclesiastical ministries, the works of the apostolate, they're all bound up with the Eucharist. And they're all oriented towards it. As the Catechism says in paragraph 1324, for in the Blessed Sacrament is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Paschal meal. Mother Teresa recognized this as one of her major priorities. She did a daily holy hour along with her sisters. I mean, she didn't have to. She was busy. But she already had reserved far more time for prayer than most people do. But Mother Teresa felt it was essential to her mission. And if that's the case, how is it that we hesitate to commit to a regular holy hour? I know there's some practical obstacles to committing the, and suggestions for overcoming them. <clears throat> Let me give you some suggestions to overcome these hurdles. Number one, check out the options. Take a hard look at your schedule and the options available for adoration. Is there something that you could drop from your routine to make time for adoration? Could you make an overnight slot? What about going to a different parish for the from your local one? Yeah, the drive might be longer, but would, would the more convenient hour make a difference? <clears throat> or how about pairing up? It's the second thing I would tell you. Take a leaf out of Jesus' book and pair it up two by two as you send people. Look for somebody who will commit with you and hold you accountable to a particular hour. Number three, <clears throat> try a partial commitment. Could you do a less frequent commitment? Could you go bi-weekly or even just monthly? It might not even seem worth it, but think about it. Your partial commitment could in turn enable another person in a situation similar to yours to also attend adoration. Don't sell this idea short, especially if you take an overnight hour. Also, maybe you're reluctant to commit because you know you can't go, 
you can't do so for long. You're expecting a baby or your family's military uh, and you're moving this coming summer or you're aging and don't know how much longer you'll be able to drive. In this case, give what you can for a season. Give what you can now and trust Jesus to take care of the things long term. Don't be discouraged if it doesn't seem like much. Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish. Do not underestimate what he can do with only a small commitment. Also, remember that Jesus is 100% man as well, is 100% God. Maybe you want to commit to an hour, but the silence and the stillness that accompany adoration, it makes it tough. Let's face it. It's not easy keeping a baby or a toddler or both quiet for an hour. Or maybe you're on the older side and you find it painful to sit or kneel for long, for long periods of time. Or maybe the only hours available to you are in the middle of the night and you're sure you'll just fall asleep. And if you, and if you even make it to the church, Jesus, fortunately, is human as well as divine. Remember the storm at the sea? Jesus didn't awake until his disciples disturbed him because he was so exhausted. He understands our exhaustedness, our feebleness, and will provide the necessary grace if we only make an effort. That effort may not look perfect in your eyes. Maybe you need to get up and walk about the church to keep your toddler in check or give your hurting body a rest. Maybe you will not, you will periodically not off during a, a 2 to 3 a.m. holy hour, but you're there. You're present. That's what matters. Don't get discouraged. What about the matter of apparently fruitless holy hours? You go and go and nothing ever seems to happen. You're just a distracted, bored basket case. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Again, it's a matter of showing up. It's a matter of presence. Only you can offer Jesus the gift of your presence. And just trust that he appreciates it and that adoration is worth your while. If only you keep showing up with an open heart. Likewise, there are specific things you can do to cultivate a better interior disposition, which will help you draw more fruit from adoration. One example, don't engage in people watching when you're in adoration. Try them and never, ever grow discouraged. Jesus is just happy that you're there. One day, you'll see what a difference this time with Jesus made. People don't realize, you know what the word adoration means in Latin? Ad oratio. Mouth to mouth. Yeah, think about this. In adoration, Jesus gives us mouth to mouth to mouth resuscitation what a thought we'll be back Jesus 911 Jess Romero one man car Monday family start of the week I'm going to be talking about anthropology 101 why marriage is only between one man and one woman and we'll be talking about the amazing reason to be Catholic Now, back to Jesus 911.
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, we're back, family. <clears throat> Jesus 911. My name is Jesse Romero. There's a song, a psalm I want to share. It's very beautiful, Psalm 84. The psalms always just, they just inject my, my soul with, with uh, inspiration. King David writes in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts. My soul is longing and yearning, is yearning for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my soul ring out their joy to God, the living God. They are happy, whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the roads to Zion. As they go through the bitter valley, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rain covers it with blessings. They walk with ever-growing strength. They will see the God of gods in Zion. One day within your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For the Lord God is a rampart, a shield. He will give us his favor and glory. The Lord will not refuse any good to those who walk without blame. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's talk about Anthropology 101. The last battle between Satan and those of us on planet Earth will be over marriage and the family. And boy, oh boy, are we seeing that right now. The fight to to hold on to the binary Adam and Eve model of marriage that God gave us. We're in the fight of our life, family. One of the more difficult truths about the Catholic faith or Catholic Christianity is that we've got to navigate today in this culture of death. And we have to navigate to convince people of the most basic truth about what God has intended for marriage. All of you know about the familiar story in Genesis that explains how God established man and woman to be together in a covenant and how that covenant is affected in a negative fashion through the fall. This is in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. We read in Matthew's gospel about Jesus' reference to the beginning in Matthew 19, 8. Jesus references the book of Genesis and how marriage is not meant to end in divorce. That's what our Lord tells us. Even in this context, Jesus is clear that marriage is constituted in a lifelong bond between one man and one woman. While the permanence of marriage is something worthy of discussion all on its own, it is just as essential to uphold marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman. The covenant of marriage reveals certain truths about our humanity, but that would be lost if marriage were open to different definitions, such as homosexual marriage, polyamorous marriage, etc. Marriage reveals to us, what it does reveal to us is that man, by his nature, is a communion of persons. So often that we're inundated by ideas that we are atomized individuals in a society. Not true. That's a fancy way to say that we often see life in a very individualistic manner and terms and that we determine our own vision of humanity. But marriage, it shows us that we aren't created for isolation. We're created for communion. I was created for communion with Anita Chacon, now Anita Romero. <clears throat> my sacramentally, uh, my, my sacramental spouse. But even in the moments for the redefinition of marriage 
we see this implicit desire played out. We find that our, our meaning only in communion with another. The reason that the church insists on marriage between one man and one woman is that communion has a goal, a mission, a purpose. The church teaches that marriage is for the mutual enrichment of the spouses and the procreation of children. The term enrichment or mutual enrichment is enlightening in and of itself. It's not about self-enrichment. Rather, enrichment only comes through and with another. Thus, the communion of persons in marriage is not only possible through self-gift, not self-fulfillment, self-gift. You'll find the secular words, the secular world is always teaching you about self-fulfillment. To phrase it differently, marriage is not about seeking a personal selfish fulfillment, nor is it about simple companionship. But it comes by the principle that the only way to gain life is to give it away for another. I'm going to say that again. The only way to gain life, especially eternal life, is to give it away for another. This is a fundamental truth revealed through marriage. And one of the purposes marriage has is to be witnesses to love. To reveal that this form of love, which builds up communion, is what fulfills the humanity of every person. This communion through self-gift is expressed sexually in marriage. Scripture is clear that procreation is a central purpose for the sexual act. It thereby follows quite simply that marriage must be between a man and a woman because only the conjugal act between the two can have as its end the possible procreation of a child. Indeed, the church teaches that what she does about the exclusivity of marriage to being between a man and a woman for two reasons. One is simple. It's how God has constituted things and Revelation clearly states this. Natural law. Again, we see that from nature that man and woman are made for each other. Our, our simple biology reveals this. Biology 101 reveals that we were made for each other. There is... <clears throat> There's communion. Our biology reveals that this communion only makes sense between one man and a woman. And in this communion, the, the, even the sexual complementarity of a man and a woman fulfills and completes each other through the distinctive characteristics of their genders. This is a hard teaching for the world to understand. The world whose intellect is darkened, the unspiritual man, as St. Paul calls the unspiritual man who's, who says that the things of God are foolishness. The reason the world, the unbelieving secular world, uh, does not buy into marriage as ordained by God, the reasons are manifold why people often misunderstand the church's teaching. The moral character of her teaching on marriage depends on a moral framework that sees the purpose of things to be constitutive of moral action. The sexual biology of man and woman have specific ends or purposes that can only be completed in the context of a union with each other. 
or the world does not see procreation as a necessary outcome of marriage. Here we often see that marriage is about companionship or that how one feels is what really matters. This is the line of argumentation often used by people who are pursuing the same-sex marriage agenda. Yet they're ignoring the fundamental character of marriage that sex is both integral sex is both integral to it and has a specific purpose, a teleos, even if that outcome is not always achieved. Namely, both the enrichment of the spouses through self-gift and the related possibility of bringing about new life. The church understands understanding that this depends on a moral framework that is at best foreign to the mindset of most people. It's why we we must not only witness with greater fervency to the life-giving nature of marriage, but how it reveals what it means to be truly human and thereby call the world back to this truth that is both inscribed in nature and revealed by God. My name is Jesse Romero. Remember on Mondays, I'm also going to talk about amazing facts about the Catholic Church that will make you proud. Segment three and four, I'm going to talk about the way the Catholic Church has regulated wars. It's going to be fascinating. If it wasn't for the Catholic Church, uh, wars would be completely out of control and barbarian. So you definitely want to hear segment three and four. Another amazing fact about the Catholic Church that's going to make you proud to be Catholic Our religion is the only religion that gave the world what's called the just war theory. And we have regulated human violence to some extent to the best that we can in this fallen world with our fallen nature. I'll tell you why divorce is is so awful. It's like splitting an atom when a sacrament, when there's two people married in the Catholic Church get divorced. It's like splitting an atom. To split the atom is to cause a nuclear explosion. The split of a husband and wife is to cause a societal explosion and chaos. Our secular humanist moral relativist society seeks to undermine and harm our marriages. But the Catholic Church gives us the divine order by which we can heal and strengthen our families. Satan attacked marriage and family life in the Garden of Eden by causing Eve to disobey and through Adam's weakness. Adam did not stand up to take charge. Adam did not stand up and take charge and protect his wife. Instead, he followed her in her disobedience against God. And now we're all paying for it. It's called original sin. And now we suffer even after baptism from concupiscence for the rest of our life. Satan, in his cunning, used his best trick in the Garden of Eden, which is teach people to question authority. Teach people to question authority. And Satan continues to use this strategy against men and women now in the present age. Remember, that the Christian life is, is the Christian life is one of action, not not just of speech, 
or of daydreams. Let there be few words and many deeds and let them be done well. Marriage is love in action. That's the point that I'm making. Loving each other requires an alliance of two hearts. Archbishop Sheen used to say, marriage has three rings. Number one, the engagement ring. Number two, the wedding ring. And number three, suffering. Learn to wear the last one for Jesus. (laughs) Your marriage, Fulton Sheen said, your marriage will not last because you are strong. It will last because you have the power to renew your marriage. My name is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Jesus 911. Hope you had a great week, and I sure did. And on the next segment, I'm going to be talking about another amazing fact about the Catholic Church that's going to make you proud. That's the way the Catholic Church regulated human violence and barbarism through the just war theory. We'll be right back. Stick around. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. Today's psalm at Holy Mass, Psalm 93. The Lord is King, He is robed in majesty, in splendor robe. Robed is the Lord and girt about with strength. And he has made the world firm, not to be moved. Your throne stands firm from of old, from everlasting. You are the Lord. Hey, we want to talk about the just war theory now. This is Monday's amazing fact about being a Catholic. Let's just be honest. There's been wars since the beginning of time. Why? Because we're sinners. And there's a beast inside every one of us that can only be tamed and tempered by faith in the Holy Spirit. And so the Catholic Church, understanding the nature of man, it's fallen, it's wounded as a result of concupiscence, and that people fight, and there's aggression, and there's barbarism, and there's evil, and there's wars. The Catholic Church... 1,600 years ago, a great bishop named St. Augustine, he, he wrote down, he penned what's called the just war theory. This is the Catholic contribution to international law. Again, the great minds of the Catholic Church know that there will always be war until the second coming of Christ, unfortunately. Not that we desire it. The church just knows because of our fallen nature. Why are there wars? And why will there be wars until the second coming of Christ? Why? Our Lady of Fatima Fatima told us in 1917, because wars are a punishment from God for sin. That's why. Wars are a punishment from God for sin. The inspired writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, his name is Koholeth, Koholeth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 
verses 3 and 8, he says that there's a time to kill and a time of war. God's word also says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18, it says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. <laughs> ah, you don't believe me? One sinner destroys much good. Look what Joe Biden's doing in this country and the way we're on the verge of entering World War III because of one sinner. So we as Catholics, <clears throat> we look to the church, the pillar and foundation of truth, as it tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15. We look to the church to understand when such a time exists when someone should go to war. As we have seen in the context of military action, this time exists only when it is Necessary to repel an aggressor, the church teaches. All other means of repelling the aggressor have been ineffective. There is serious prospects of success. The damage inflicted by the aggressor is lasting, grave and certain. And the evils and disorders produced by the war must not be graver than the evil eliminated. That is... The act of defense must be proportionate to the aggressor's to the aggressor's offense. I'll say that again. The act of defense in war must be proportionate to the aggressor's offense. So, the just war theory is a doctrine given to us by Saint Augustine back in the fourth century. It's also referred to as a tradition of military ethics which is studied by military leaders theologians ethicists and policymakers this is the great contribution of the Roman Catholic Church to international law the purpose of the just war doctrine <clears throat> The purpose of the just war doctrine is to ensure that a war is morally justifiable through a series of criteria, all of which must be met for a war to be considered just. So here are the criteria. They're found in the catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2309. 2309. It says this. The strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force requires rigorous consideration. The gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy. At one at the same time, the number one, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the, on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. Number two, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Number three, there must be serious prospects of success. Number four, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. So, those five bullets, these are the traditional elements enumerated in what is called the just war doctrine.
St. Augustine, the writer of this doctrine, who lived in a time of war, in fact, they thought the world was going to end at the time of Augustine, uh, Rome was fighting the barbarians. And the barbarians defeated Rome in 476 AD. And Rome collapsed, pagan Rome. St. Augustine reminds us that the purpose of all war is peace. The purpose of all war is peace. When Jesus comes at the end of time in Revelation chapter 19 and he comes to make war against all the nations, why is he coming? Because he wants to bring in peace. St. Augustine reminds us that the purpose of war is peace. St. Augustine insisted a Christian, soul, a Christian could be a soldier as well as a servant of God. He saw no contradiction in that. St. Augustine went so far, in fact, as to say in facing a great wrong that could only be stopped by violence, peacefulness would be a serious sin. In other words, if you're facing a great wrong that can only be stopped by force and violence, not doing so would be a serious sin. G.K. Chesterton, he said, quote, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. The evaluation of these conditions for moral legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have the responsibility for the common good, which is the government, the governing bodies. The church's teaching on war includes the right, indeed the obligation of governments to defend its citizens against aggressors. This would include bringing aggressors to justice. During his primacy, John Paul II has, has spoken for peace and the elements necessary to ensure the rights of people in ways other than warfare. Besides the catechism paragraph, however, the Second Vatican Council's Gaudiumet Spes is the most recent church document that actually promotes the doctrine of just war. It says, certainly war has not been rooted out of human affairs. As long as the danger of war remains and there's no competent and sufficiently powerful authority at the international level, governments cannot be denied the right to legitimate defense once every means of peaceful settlement has been exhausted. State authorities and others who share public responsibility have the duty to conduct such grave matters soberly and to protect the welfare of the people entrusted to their care. But it is one thing to undertake military action for the just defense of the people and something else again to seek the subjugation of other nations like communism and Nazism. Nor, by the same token, does the mere fact that war has has unhappily begun mean that all is fair between the warring parties. Those two who devote themselves to the military service of their country should regard themselves as the agents of security and freedom of peoples. As long as they fulfill this role properly, they are making a genuine contribution to the establishment of peace. You're listening to Jesse Romero. My name is, uh, we're talking about Catholic contributions that people don't realize the things that the Catholic Church has done for planet Earth to bring about the common good. And the Catholic Church has given us this doctrine. It's called the, the just war doctrine. Why? Because the church understands human nature. And the church understands that people are wicked and people are and, and people are weak and they follow their concupiscence. And so, so that they won't be 
a completely scorched earth through war, the church has given criterias, and this has now been accepted as international law. Yes, the Catholic Church has set down the template, and the Catholic Church has given us the do's and don'ts of war because the church is very practical and the church knows that because of men's fallen nature and because of the because men suppress the truth the wickedness in the heart of a man one of the causal effects is going to be war the just war theory is an ethical framework composed by saint augustine back in 430 AD he was the originator of the just war theory which, by the way, St. Thomas Aquinas in 1274 AD later adapted and explicated in a Summa Theologica. St. Thomas thought, <clears throat> he taught the following, quote, for a war to be just, three conditions are necessary. Public authority, just cause, and right motive. You're listening to Jesus 911. My name is Jesse Romero. Just want to remind you that over the weekend, Bishop O'Connell was killed. The Bishop of the Diocese of San Gabriel. Eternal rest grant unto Bishop O'Connell, Lord. Let your perpetual light shine upon him. May the soul of Bishop O'Connell, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. We'll be right back talking about the just war theory. One of the great contributions of the Catholic Church to international law. Proud to be Catholic. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, one-man car. My name is Jess Romero. I'm talking about every Monday, I'll take one or two segments, sometimes the entire show, and talk about some of the great contributions that only the Roman Catholic Church has given planet Earth and no other religion has. None. None. Today I'm talking about the doctrine of the just war theory given to us by the Catholic Church because the church knows that people are evil and wicked. In their heart they suppress the truth and there's always going to be fighting, aggression, and war. So the church has given us this uh, a list of do's and don'ts knowing that nations will always go to war. When, how long will nations go to war for? Until every man and nation accepts Jesus Christ in their heart as Lord and King. Until we see the social kingship of Christ, which probably won't happen entirely until the second coming of Christ. That's when there will be no more war. Again, John Paul II who had a big part in writing Gaudium et Spes at the Second Vatican Council. I just shared paragraph 79. Talks about <clears throat> the, the most recent document that actually promotes the doctrine of the just war theory. It's right in God, Vatican II. I'll read it again. Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 79. This was, this was uh, influenced by John Paul II. He said this, Certainly war has not been rooted out of human affairs. As long as the danger of war remains and there is no competent and sufficiently powerful authority at the international level, governments cannot be denied the right to legitimate defense once every means of peaceful settlement has been exhausted. State authorities and others who share public responsibility have the duty to conduct such grave matters soberly 
and to protect the welfare of the people entrusted to their care. But it is one thing to undertake military action for the just defense of the people and something else again to seek the subjugation of other nations. In other words, talking about communism and Nazism and fascism. Can't do that. It says, nor by the same token does the mere fact that war has unhappily begun mean that mean that all is fair between the warring parties. It's not. Those two who devote themselves to the military service of their country should regard themselves as agents of security and freedom of peoples. As long as they fulfill this role properly, they are making a genuine contribution to the establishment of peace. Also, prior to Vatican II, Venerable, <clears throat> Venerable Pope Pius XII, he makes it clear. He made it clear that Christianity does not equal passivity when it comes to unjust aggression. Here's what he writes in 1948 during a Christmas message. Venerable Pius XII says, A people threatened with an unjust aggression or already its victim may not remain passively indifferent if it would think and act as if it would think and act as befits a Christian. All the more does the solidarity of the family of nations forbid others to behave as mere spectators. In any attitude of apathetic neutrality, who will ever measure the harm already caused in the past by such indifference to the to war of aggression, which is quite alien to the Christian instinct? How much more keenly has it brought any advantage in recompense? On the contrary, it has only reassured and encouraged the authors and fomenters of aggression, while it obliges the several peoples, left to themselves, to increase their armaments indefinitely. Among the goods of humanity, some are of such importance for society that it is perfectly lawful to defend them against unjust aggression. Their defense is even an obligation for the nations as a whole who have a duty not to abandon a nation that is attacked. Close quote. Christmas message by Venerable Pope Pius XII. Again, the church does not promote passivity but the church does regulate, regulate violence in what we call war. <clears throat> Let's not forget <clears throat> that in this world we will have trouble. But take courage. Jesus has conquered the world. John chapter 16, verse 33. <clears throat> so, how will the world end? The world's going to end with a war. Where does it say that at? There's going to have to be war before there's peace. How will the world end? With a war. Let me read from the Holy Bible. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John the Apostle writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Ah, this is a reference to the glorified risen Christ coming back to planet Earth. That's the second coming of Christ on a white horse. You know, back in the Old Testament, 
You know who rode on white horses? Kings and generals and those going into battle. They, ro they rode white horses into battle. The kings and the generals. Christ is coming back as a king and as a general on a white horse. To make peace? That's not what the Bible says. To make war. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. The time, for mer the time to get right with Jesus is right now. It'll be too late when you die. And it'll be too late at the end of the world. You'll die of fright. There's an old Jewish saying in the Talmud. It says, those who are kind to the cruel will be cruel to the kind. Those who are kind to the cruel will be cruel to the kind. That's what we're seeing in America right now. That's the, the Biden administration. Kind to the Satanists, witches, the pro-aborts, but he's cruel to traditional Catholics. Those who are kind to the cruel will be cruel to the kind. The Bible tells us about Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name described which no one, no one knows but himself. He is clad in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven. Notice Jesus is coming back with armies. They're also on white horses, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Follow him on white horses. For his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations. What does that mean? Kill the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. <clears throat> and it says about Jesus, Jesus will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is going to come back and smash the unbelieving nations, make war, destroy them. And then he's going to bring in a time of peace forever. The time of peace doesn't come about till the next chapter. Uh, Revel actually, Revelation chapter 21. Once Jesus Christ destroys the unbelieving nations through war, it says, Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. Christ will bring in peace after the war. Remember, let's not forget, in this world we will have trouble, but take courage. Jesus has conquered the world. John 16, 33. And Jesus alone is our peace. Ephesians 2, 14. Jesus alone is our peace. Ephesians 2, 14.
I will give St. Augustine the last word. He said, quote, Peace is not the absence of war, but the tranquility of order. Close quote. St. Augustine. Peace is not the absence of war, but the tranquility of order. Close quote. So what is this tranquility? This tranquility of order is not simply nation to nation, but the tranquility of order within myself, my heart, my mind, my body, my soul. Mary helps each one of us to be ordered to Christ, who alone is our lasting peace. Even in times of great warfare, whether it be international or internal, Mary helps us to be ordered to Christ who alone is our lasting peace. Just one more reminder. Bishop O'Connell was murdered this weekend in Hacienda Heights. I knew him. He was a friend. I had a relationship with him. He was the Bishop of San Gabriel region for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Murdered in his house in Hacienda Heights. The LA Sheriff's Department homicide is investigating. <clears throat> so I'm sure we'll, we'll find out more as, as, things, uh, as things unfold. Let's say a prayer for Bishop O'Connell. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto Bishop O'Connell, O Lord, and let your perpetual light shine upon him. May the soul of Bishop O'Connell, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's a wrap. My name is Jesse Romero. Up next, Gary Machuda, hands-on apologetics. The big guy. I'm coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. As for us, that's a wrap. We're out. Hope you enjoyed the great contribution. Another amazing fact about the Catholic Church. The just war doctrine to regulate beast-like human behavior. Thank God for the Catholic Church. All right, family, see you next time. God bless you. Keep the faith.